the connection between the military and extremism. Individuals join the military who are not extremists, but during their time in the military, they become indoctrinated. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Kavanaugh is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. That connection between military and extremism is there, but pinpointing why can be difficult. I think that we have to be, you know, somewhat careful with connecting, you know, trauma and the experience that the person has in the military with the tendency to engage in, you know, radical extremism. Today we hear from a panel of military experts to discuss this disturbing trend, why they think it's happening, and what's working to fix it. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. The role of military veterans in extremist groups has surfaced in disturbing ways recently. First, veterans were accused in a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Then we discovered that military veterans were involved in the insurrection at the Capitol in January. It's not only the public that's been caught off guard by these events. Veterans groups have been slow to grasp the impact of extremist and hateful ideology on their fellow vets. Today, we bring you a virtual forum on the issue of violent extremism among America's veterans and suggest some way to confront the problem. The guests include Richard Brookshire, co-founder and executive director of Black Veterans Project, Pete Simi, a professor of sociology specializing in right-wing extremism, the social psychology of hate and domestic terrorism at Chapman University, and Tony McAleer, founder of Life After Hate and author of The Cure for Hate, along with Akila Templeton, who is CEO of Veterans Village of San Diego, and John Clark III, a retired Navy commander and author and principal consultant for the Pi Group. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh moderated the event and began the conversation with Richard Brookshire, asking about Brookshire's experiences in the military. So you're, you were a, a former army medic here. You were in Afghanistan in 2009. I, I think it's really important. We, we, we're talking a lot about the capital siege and, and, the, and the, the veterans that were involved in that. But these issues don't begin or end with, with the siege on the Capitol. Um, what, what was your experience? What did you see as a medic in 2009? Yeah, well, I was in Afghanistan in 2011, but I joined in 2009. Oh. Um, no worries. And 
What did I see? I mean, I saw, um, I was stationed in Germany. I saw a deep fascination with Hitler, with uh, Nazism, just kind of a, per a pervasive kind of just undertone, right? Um, we know that, you know, it says, or at least in the doctrine that like, you should be an apolitical somewhat in the military, but that's not true, right? Like people bring their full selves to bear, um, but there's much more room for like provocative conservative rhetoric. Um, I was rife with conspiracy theories. I, I Very rare that I went to work where there wasn't one in appropriate dialogue, sometimes crossing the border into just full out racism. Um, but, you know, there was also this kind of this this deep distrust of government, um, which was odd because you're serving said government. Um, I was serving under Obama at the time. Um, and so there was you could just just kind of get a sense of this racial animus. But even amongst the, you know, on my fellow troops, um, it, I felt that one, I, I recognized that, uh, that the majority of, uh, of, of folk that black folk that I was serving uh, uh, among were in service-oriented roles, understanding that that's a legacy, right, right of, of, of before the military was even integrated, um, seeing a dearth of representation in the high, um, higher enlisted ranks, um, certainly in the officer corps, um, you know, just anecdotal conversations um, from, from those that I worked alongside, feeling as though they were being marginalized in their careers and not really feeling that they had a, a voice, not, and, and, and certainly feeling like they didn't want to, you know, raise any red flags for fear of repercussions, um, for fear of, of kind of tainting themselves essentially as like a problem soldier. Um, so that's that's some of what I experienced. So when you got back after serving in Afghanistan, um, you, you, you saw a story in the newspaper, right? The, the, mm. Someone had gone in and they had stabbed uh, an African-American. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me about that story. Yes, um, I, I think his name was Dylan. I haven't committed it to memory to be frank, but um, our careers mirrored each other in very just uh, uncomfortable ways. Like, right, so we were, we had never been stationed specifically in the same unit, um, but we went to uh, Fort Leonard Wood for basic training at the same time, had been stationed in bomb holder at the same time. Bomb holder is a very small standalone brigade, infantry brigade at the time, uh, deployed to Afghanistan at the same time, got out of the military at the same time, we're the same age as well. Um, and so, you know, I was just riding the train to work one day, um, just in, a, in a many ways, you know, and I think it's important to state, like I joined on the heels of the first black president and transitioned out of the military on the heels of Trump, right? So I think that was traumatic for, for most people, but for me, as kind of a young idealistic um, soldier, that was a traumatic kind of transition. I um, mean, then also transitioning into the state that the country was in at the time where the state of racial justice was just so, um, bad, uh, essentially, and and really trying to figure out how I fit yeah. it, how to make sense of it. Um, so I was reading the, the, the paper one day, and I read his story, and I just broke down. Because I think for me, um, why I got so emotional was because it all kind of came together, right? Um, and then you- This you know, was you somebody you knew personally, and he had- uh, what he had grabbed a sword or a knife and he had so he had, he had, he had, he had been radicalized i did not know his, him personally i think i want to make a correction there okay um, but we were stationed on a very small base so it's very likely that we ate chow next to each other but okay. i think it's that's beside the point whether i knew him personally i think it was just an example right of how radicalization can kind of fester um and he you know after he got out um and you know to a certain degree he may have been radicalized while he was in service right i mean many of that kind of come in with their predis the, the, 
they're predisposed to being racist, racist in some in some respects or being racially biased. But he came out, he got involved in like the neo-Nazi movement. Um, he decided that he wanted to come to New York at the time with the explicit intent of killing a black person. That was just like his intent. He had a sword and he went and stabbed a homeless black, uh, I believe the man was a former uh, veteran as well, um, but he was homeless um, and stabbed him to death. It was not somebody he knew? No. He had no prior connection to him? Random random stranger, which is not uh, not as, um, I guess, infrequent as we would hope, right? Like there there have been black vets that have been killed um, by white nationalists, by racists over the course of the last few years, let alone the last few decades. Um, and that's something that we just have to, to start to reckon with in an honest way. But these are some of these sort of semi-anonymous things that, that happen that don't grab front page headlines, yeah. but, um, but they do happen. So, you, you work with the Black Veterans Project. Do you work with other veterans groups? Did you try to get involved with other veterans groups once you came home? Well, I mean, like so many vets, I couldn't wait to get out, right? Like I wanted to get my veterans and run for the hills. Um, and so I actually never thought I'd be working in the vet space at all. Um, but when I started the Black Veteran Project, I had the opportunity to go work at IVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And it was really where I think I got my chops, right? Like I learned, to, you know, not only just what, how the vet space was could laid out. Um, and even just before that, saying that like, you know, even as someone who was a little bit proactive about trying to find community, it was very difficult to find community. There is such a wide chasm, like, you know, chasm, you know, a, wide, a widening actually civilian military divide. So there's so many few people that really understand my experience. Um, but even trying to connect to, to vets writ large, there was no hub, right? And then the hubs that did exist, they leaned to, you know, toward the kinds of people that I just kind of tolerated while I was in the military, but didn't necessarily want to foster community with post-service, right? Those kind of cons- the conspiracy laden um, conservatives, the kind of fratty, um, you know, the frat boys essentially of the military. And so, and they're, they kind of predominate in, in the vet space. Um, so anyways, I was involved at IVA um, and learned a lot there. Um, and in the last few years have been really uh, building out and cultivating relationships with more story black vet organizations. So one thing I just want to mention quickly is there's been an organization uh, just understanding that as black vets, we have to lead the conversation, um, but we also have to get organized. Um, last summer, the House Veteran Affairs Committee convened around table of a local state and national level black veteran organizations and born out of that was the black veteran empowerment council um of which pvp now sits under um and and it's really like i said a way for us to start to convene in a way that's never really happened before uh resource share resources share information and 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 create a centralized kind of advocacy uh, and get some of the these stories out here that just have not come to light in the past What's it like? To, is this is the veteran community uh, a welcoming community overall for African Americans? Is this uh, when we're talking about these kinds of uh, issues, like like dealing with extremism? Are are people excited to hear about this? Do they want to get involved? Well, I certainly think there is a there is I think there's a misconception, right, that everybody that serves in the military might lean conservative. That like there that, that though we know that minorities, you know, oh, it's definitely not true. Definitely, it's definitely not true. Yeah. And so it's about like cultivating community. And so I I mean I get emails every single day from people that are excited at even the prospect of our work when we're just beginning. Have zero resources, donate if you can. But like you know, and then just kind of just getting it off the ground, right? Um, so that's exciting. Um, as far as the more storied vet organizations. 
you know, even, you know, for instance, something like the American Legion, Black vets have always had to kind of create their own lanes in these institutions whilst all also being marginalized within. Um, there's a long legacy of racism that even dates back to last year when, you know, a senior leader had to step down um, because she felt aggrieved, racially aggrieved, and felt like, she, you know, the, the work that she was wanting to kind of raise up in the American Legion was being marginalized, right? Um, and you also have um, folk who, help lead some of these vet organizations that very much are in support of the insurrectionist kind of Trump movement, right? Um, so that's that's an uncomfortable truth, but it's a fact. Um, and we certainly can't just wait for them to catch up to speed. We have to force that. But do, do you feel the newer groups are a little more opening, uh, a little more open, a little more accepting, a little more welcoming? I'll say the younger groups are welcoming. Um, they are, they're, they're, and they're also ambitious, right? I mean, I think that just goes with being young and kind of wanting to see the world in new lights and, and embracing possibility um, in, in certain respects. So yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there is an organization. It's funny because I read a piece by Newt Gingrich uh, today um, in Fox, on Fox News and he was talking about um, the danger of these like young woke veterans. Um, and yeah, I, thought it was, I thought it was funny and telling and it's just like, okay, we're doing something right. If we're pissing Newt Gingrich off and we're just getting started, we're doing something right. I'm gonna move on here right now to, uh, to Pete Simi. He's a professor of, of sociology at Chapman University. Uh, you're an expert on uh, racial extremism, and you've looked at these groups and, and why they target people with a military background specifically. I know I just, uh, the raw data, at least 36 people of the 250 people who have been charged in the Capitol siege had a, a military or law enforcement background. That doesn't include Ashley Babbitt, who is the uh, Air Force veteran who was shot climbing through an interior window in, in the Capitol building. So, so Pete, tell me, so why... Why, why do they target veterans? Why is that important? And is it just a coincidence that we're seeing so many people that were involved in the Capitol siege? Well, first, uh, thanks for having me. And um, it's definitely not a coincidence. Uh, this is a long-standing pattern that we're seeing play out in terms of the January 6th incident. Um, so this is really not new news and shouldn't be any surprise, really. Um, we can, we can really look at this kind of in terms of three pathways as far as how this all plays out as far as the relationship between military experience and right-wing extremism. One, we have a, a really old strategy that's been used by right-wing extremist groups to essentially encourage their members to join the military as part of what they call an infiltration strategy. So that is people who are already adopted extremist ideology are going and seeking out military experience. And that's uh, part of this larger strategy of in infiltrating society that also includes law enforcement, includes education, and essentially society as a whole. So that, that's one, one facet of, of the relationship. Another facet is that you have some individuals, and I've seen this firsthand in some of my field work, uh, in particular with a person by the name of Wade Page, where individuals join the military who are not extremists, but during their time in the military, they become indoctrinated. So, for example, with Page, he joined the U.S. Army in 1992, not long after high school. Eventually, he ends up at Fort Bragg around 95. And at that point, he meets somebody on base who's already a neo-Nazi that introduces him to neo-Nazi propaganda and music. And at that point, it clicked. And in fact, what he told me was that if you don't go in, a, uh, in the military as a racist, you're sure to come out as one. And I, I specifically recall that. Because Wait, I'd heard that same, I'd heard that same before. I'd had what does actually, that mean? I mean, 
Well, why would that be true? Because it's that's certainly not true of everyone. That or, or it's even a majority not true of everyone. Yeah. So part of that is his justification and rationalization for adopting those beliefs. But what he was trying to say was that there's an anti-white agenda that's prominent in the military, and he started experiencing that and seeing reverse discrimination. And uh, it was after his time in the military that he really goes head first and becomes so, you know really immersed in neo-Nazi uh, networks after the military. And he's really embraced by folks across across the U.S. and actually in Europe. Eventually, he he becomes heavily involved in the music scene. I meet him around 2000 and spend a couple years uh, doing interviews with him and, and observing his his life. Uh, and then in 2012, uh, he walks into a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, armed with a nine millimeter handgun and opens fire and kills, murders six people uh, who were who were at, at temple that day and uh, leaves the the temple gets into a firefight with law enforcement, and then eventually takes his own life, shoots himself in the head. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry, the Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. I'm Jade Hindman. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Maureen Cavanaugh has the day off. We continue our special broadcast of the KPBS Forum on Violent Extremists Among America's Veterans. Host KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh continues his conversation with Professor Pete Simi, an expert in extremism and domestic terrorism from Chapman University. Tell me about some of the groups that were active at, at the Capitol. We, we, we've We've done we've looked at extremism in the military sort of in general and things like, the you know, Boogaloo Boys and things like that. But um, there were some specific groups that were very active January 6th, like the Oath Keepers, right? Yeah. So the you know, the Oath Keepers definitely had a pretty substantial presence uh, January 6th and they've been around for quite a while. They were founded in 2009. Um, they, um, you know, have a very strong military and law enforcement association. And so that's a, a major part of their focus in terms of recruitment, uh, not, not exclusively, but that, but that certainly is, is a major, you know, kind of focus for them. Uh, you also had three percenters, um, uh, with, uh, president January 6th. And that, that's and, another of them from the militia movement, another group from the militia movement. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Based on the idea that 3% of the uh, revolution, you know, 3% of the population during revolutionary America were the patriots who basically, you know, helped, helped found the, you know, the country that fought the revolution. 
but so they see themselves as very wrapped up in the notion of upholding the constitution, but there's a much more darker uh, kind of layer to this once you start peeling away the, the outer surface part about, you know, the, the pro-America patriotism and so forth. There's a lot of other things going on in, in groups like the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters. But they, both of those groups that you just mentioned, they, they tend to have a strong um, military pension. They, 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 either, yeah. they either covet people who are veterans or have that military experience, or they, they present themselves as military, as, you know, with body armor and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And there, you know, for some veterans, there's, and again, we're, we're talking about, you know, a segment. And it's not clear what what size that segment is, but uh, certainly not entirely. Uh, no. So we want to be careful in terms of that. But but a segment finds some kind of familiarity and comfort in the fact that a lot of these right wing extremist groups are essentially paramilitary in their structure and organization and the language that they use. And because they are really confirming and um, uh, really kind of reinforcing a certain kind of identity. Uh, in terms of, you know, really valuing military experience and saying how important and we really want to welcome that. So I want to get into a little bit more uh, in, into QAnon and how this fact has factored in it. And I will tell you when I was first doing stories about Ashley Babbitt, who was the uh, San Diego Air Force veteran who was killed at the Capitol, uh, climbing in a window. She was an adherent of QAnon. I think we might even have a picture of her with a Q shirt on. You know, this grew up in the, in the, in the Trump administration, um, but the QAnon really has some, some really long and very dark roots. There's, there's a real anti-Semitic root to this, isn't there? Some yeah, people. absolutely. In, in many respects, QAnon is kind of recycling various tropes that have been around in the kind of universe of right-wing extremism for a long time and, and, and more broadly, and certainly anti-Semitism is one of them. You see a lot of references to the Rothschild family, which is essentially code word for the international Jew, quote unquote, which is this idea that there's essentially a small uh, international Jewish conspiracy that controls world affairs. Um, so you, you see also things related to sovereign citizenship and posse comitatus ideas about the county sheriff being the highest law of the land. And they talk about America's actually not a, a, a republic anymore. It's uh, actually a corporation. These are ideas that have been around uh, long, long before we ever heard about Q. Right. But this whole idea that there's this deep state that's made up from, from everyone, from Hillary Clinton to the intelligence community, to Tom Hanks, to the media, and where there were supposed to be arrests here, we, um, they, they were going to happen maybe at the inauguration, if you were looking at some of the, the chatter that was going on. And, and well, Telegram they're still and talking about now early March, March right. 5th, uh, Trump 2021 is going to be his new term will start. So, so, right. So that's the thing. This, I, you know, it struck me as like after, after the inauguration, this would go away. That nothing happened. No, no one intervened. Nobody made Donald Trump president and that this would start to fade away. But that's it doesn't look like that's happening. Some people look at that and, and, and feel they were duped just looking at the chatter. Sure. But then others seem to have doubled down and they're, they're still going. And this this is really not going away, is this? No. And, you know, even if Q were to disappear tomorrow, which it's not going to, but if that were to miraculously happen, the ideas are still circulating widely and broadly. And so 
Um, you know, that's we get focused sometimes too much on specific groups. We're dealing with a worldview here that's deeply penetrated, um, you know, American society, but but actually globally as well, because this is a global problem. Um, so, so a lot of times I think we focus too much on the groups and not recognize that this is a broad worldview that that this represents. Right. But though in the case of Q, was it May in 2019, the FBI put out a bulletin from the Phoenix office describing this conspiracy theory as a domestic terror threat. And that um, I know in Southern Poverty Law Center, they've, there have been several cases where this has turned violent. So, I mean, it, it's very detailed and it goes in all sorts of different directions. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's quite, um, you know, involved and detailed and there's an aspect to it. I think for some of the folks who get into it, that it's almost like they're playing some kind of social mediated video game where, you know, Q puts out these little codes and they try and break the codes. And for those that are really heavily, you know, invested in it, I think there is a real kind of, um, uh, it might be the wrong word, but entertainment value to it in terms of they, they really find it pleasurable to be invested in these kind of things. And of course, they also see themselves as, you know, helping save children and, and really, you know, you know, having this special insight about the evils that are all around us. And I, I, from what some of the things I've been reading, it's, uh, um, it's gotten involved in all sorts of things. You could go on uh, self-help uh, groups. You can go into groups that are dealing with like yoga classes and like, and start picking up on some of these theories. So it's quite fungible. It goes off in all of these different directions and it's, and it's um, not really showing signs of dying out. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the more frightening aspects of Q is how much it really did spread essentially like wildfire. And we, we are, it appears that we're talking about millions of, of adherence in, in some form or another. Again, not all the folks, you know, there's some folks that are kind of on the fringes, you might call them Q curious, and then there are those that are deeply invested. So it's a full range of, of involvement, but uh, we are talking about not a few folks, you know, we're talking about a very large number here. Not only are they not going away, but it, this, this has changed so much, even in the last year. Well, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of aspects to it, but as far as the violence, what I'm most concerned about uh, kind of post-January 6th are two things, that that was a major kind of mass mobilization that, uh, you know, turned violent, and that will have a radicalizing impact for some of those that were either directly involved or were vicariously involved in that they watched it on live stream or they watched the various, you know, video clips that are readily available. And for some individuals, either in small cells or single actors, they're going to want to further what we saw on January 6th and continue to strike out violently uh, as a, a kind of representative of the cause. And of course, they have a long history of doing that. So, and we've seen that happen with similar types of kind of events like January 6th, where it radicalizes the individuals who, who directly participated and they commit even more violence after the fact. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go on here to uh, Tony McAleer. He's the author of uh, The Cure for Hate. He was once a neo-Nazi. He now helps others leave white extremist groups. You were in the military yourself, Tony. Um, what is the appeal of, of, of this, this kind of extremism? In, you know, are, are people really, you know, people are being targeted. But what, what is the appeal if you're someone who's, who has been a veteran? Well, I think the appeal of, of people that have been in, in the military or who are in the military or encouraged to go in the military, obviously, is 
is the weapons training. Um, I was involved in in a reserve unit in, in Canada, um, and I did it strictly for the weapons training. I didn't talk to anybody about my beliefs when I was when I was in there. I just did it strictly for the weapons training. And I think that there's a sense of um, patriotism, a sense of nationalism, um, which is not problematic that, that many veterans have. Uh, and that sense of that sense of duty and and patriotism can often be sort of manipulated, you know, and to, to take it to another another step. You know, at what point does nationalism become ultra nationalism? You know, at what point does does um, sort of the the healthy view of wanting to get involved and serve the community? Um, at what point does that actually become something much more sinister? Mm. I, I certainly don't want to paint with a broad brush or de demonize um, in everyone whose politics might be to the right of center as somehow being uh, an extremist. Um, or even somebody who might have come across this stuff on Twitter and the like and may, may have you know, talked about it somewhat and, and just sort of picked up at, at, at the outer edge. But where did these, these beliefs become a real problem? Where is that line where you know, where you really have to take this seriously. If, if your, your friends or family or, you know, maybe your buddy has, starts talking about this stuff, where's that line where, you know, it, this really becomes a problem? There's some nuances to that, but I think the, the obvious place to start is the mobilization to violence. And that's violence against property or, or individuals. Um, that are expressed through through these views, and, and we are, you know we are, let's not lose sight of the fact that um, you know the young men and women who've served in the armed forces overseas, um, we've put them in extreme situations to do extreme things, and and there yeah. isn't always the resources um, sort of help put that back together um, once they once they come home. One of the very first people that we helped at life life after hate. Uh, was indeed a veteran uh, who reached out to us. Um, and he was starting to have ideations of, uh, I think he'd seen friends uh, blown up and, and really um, hated Muslims. Uh, that, that was his motivation. And he was starting to have ideations of, of going to, to the local Muslim center and, and, and doing something. And, um, it was kind of really touch and go with the uh, duty duty to report. Mm -hmm. And uh, two of our team went out there to 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 see him. And, you know, we actually introduced him to the imam at that Muslim center and they became the um, the best of friends. But his experience overseas, it really set him up um, to to be fall into this this ideology and 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 and, and it, on, on the hopeful side it it can be fixed um you know the imam told us you know um told our guys i've got 15 minutes for him you can you know bring them down two hours later they're crying and hugging and it's really emotional mm -hmm. emotional um event so there's let's not lose lose fact of sight of the fact that that um you know, we need to to help the veterans when they when they come back because they've been through pretty extreme things. Yeah, and, and uh, it sounds like you work seriously one on one pe with people, and you really put in the time to really sort of hear them out and and bring them through this process. 
Um, but if we were going to do this on a larger scale and really look at uh, ways that you might, you know, be able to reach out to a, a number of people and kind of replicate that experience, do you think it can be done? Can this be done at a scale? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I left Life After Hate a year ago. Right. Um, but I think what Life After Hate did a great job of was providing proof of concept. And I think that the the solution isn't to make Life After Hate or an organization like that bigger and, and you know, with thousands of counselors. Let's look at the resources that are already in place in different communities, at, whether it be at the county level or, or the state level. And with some training, you know, sometimes they don't even, you know, they've got the tools to deal with, with traumas and dehumanization and, and um, PTSD and, and stuff like that. They just often need, um, they need the subject demystified. You know, they, it's like, you know, a neo-Nazi, they, they sort of freak out and don't know how to, how to deal with it. But if we give them a bit of training um, and demystify it, then, uh, then those, they can be skilled up and that's i think that's how we 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 scale it and there's there's tons of resources out there they just need to be marshaled towards this I, i'm trying to go through some of the questions here to see if we can get uh, some of these in here and uh, is anyone going to discuss accountability and solutions so i guess we're doing a little bit of that right now but when we talk about accountability though it's not always a matter of sort of holding people's hands when you're talking about like what happened on January 6th, uh, law enforcement is part of that, simply holding people accountable, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, as a, we have to hold people accountable for the things that, they, that they've done, but at the same time, we, we can't lose our sense of compassion in that. So I, um, I may despise the ideology, I may despise the activity, but I never despise the human being. And I think compassion when it's, paired up with healthy boundaries and, and healthy boundaries and consequences. And that's where the accountability piece comes in. When you put those two together, they're, they're very powerful. It's a very powerful com combination. And it's just really key that we, through the process of gra grappling with the, these, you know, extreme political issues that we don't lose our sense of compassion in, in society at the same time. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. I'm Jade Hindman. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Maureen Cavanaugh has the day off. Are veterans' organizations addressing extremism among their ranks? In the conclusion to the KPBS Forum on Violent Extremists Among America's Veterans, host Steve Walsh asks Akila Templeton, CEO of Veterans Village of San Diego, if her group has confronted that issue. Uh, typically, organizations like ours are uh, concerned about a very specific set of problems. So uh, we are typically working with veterans uh, to ensure a successful reintegration uh, back into society. And so we're concerned with things like improving the quality of life overall for the veteran and the veteran's family. Um, we're looking at housing, employment, uh, physical health, mental health, trauma, suicide prevention. 
Uh, we teach life skills and coping strategies. And so while we may not come out and say directly that we teach people not to hate or that we uh, teach people not to be racist, we might on any given day uh, witness how these beliefs manifest in the veteran's life. And so what we see are, are symptoms like isolation and uh, difficulty engaging and uh, difficulty resolving conflict, difficulty managing anger, uh, problems with family and, and with uh, relationships, and maybe even uh, involvement in the criminal justice system. And so uh, the problem becomes that uh, many of the interventions that are currently uh, in use might require looking at or challenging the core belief. And I know that uh, Tony was talking about this a little bit earlier, uh, but how do you do that if it's rooted in the person's politics or in their religious beliefs? And so that's what makes this problem uh, slightly different. You know, uh, extremists firmly believe in the morality of the cause that they, they are supporting. You know, they believe that their uh, intentions are good and that that in and of itself justifies the behavior. And so uh, when people believe that the end justifies the means, you're dealing with uh, a different challenge uh, entirely. It's uh, consequentialism, <laughs> where uh, mo morality is sort of measured you know, strictly by the consequences. And so it's the belief um, that if the act itself produces a good outcome, then the act is moral. And so for the, the violent uh, extremist, you know, something like storming the Capitol is a moral act. Uh, it's something that will uh, ultimately produce uh, a good outcome until it's not wrong. Uh, and so, you know, I guess your question is, you know, how do we tackle that or is it our responsibility to tackle that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, because in, in some ways, you know, it might be viewed as, as un-American uh, to suggest that we need to treat political affiliation right, or right. religious affiliation or belonging to a particular group. And so uh, our focus, you know, now is really uh, to consider how the belief is showing up in the veteran's life and to assess the level of risk, you know, um, when we think about that person's ability to move, you know, successfully through life uh, and to be a, a, a member of a community at large. So I guess I should have backed up and asked you the, the, the simple question. Do you see this in your everyday practice here, working with veterans um, when you're trying to place people in, in, you know, get them off the streets or trying to deal with drug addiction? Do you, do you hear these beliefs among, among your clients? You know, I, I don't know that they show up in the way that you're describing. You know, we haven't necessarily seen an up or, you know, this type of violence. And, you know, I'm I'm assuming that that is likely because the veterans in our programs have the ability to form connection, you know, once they, they enter into our programs. And that was something that Richard, I think, touched on earlier, you know, just the importance of, of connection. So I, I'm going to tell you a story. This was, I did, I think it was 2019. I did a story. It was a VA story. Uh, it was about the role that shame played in the treatment of PTSD. I talked with a veteran who had a terrible story. I mean, and he was really struggling with it. He, uh, he had been in Iraq. Uh, a, a car was coming toward his checkpoint. He had to make a split second decision, open fire on the car. 
turned out it was a grandfather and grandkids in the car. And he, you know, this was, he was incredibly traumatized by this. Um, and we did a whole story about it and, you know, and talked to researchers and the like, and then the folks at the VA that were treating him. And then this last summer during the, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, he was driving around East County with a full Nazi flag on the, on the back of his SUV. He was showing up at grocery stores and the like. Another news crew caught up with him and asked him why. And he said it was a protest because of that. He was protesting Black Lives Matter. And I just I just went like, wow, I did not I did not hear any of those beliefs when I talked to him at, and, and interviewed him at length about this very traumatic situation and his treatment. So is this a situation where in many ways people just may not know? that these, these views are out here, we're, we're just not going there? Uh, you know, I, I maybe, <laughs> you know, I think that we have to be, you know, somewhat careful with connecting, you know, trauma and the experience that the person has in the military with a tendency, you know, to be more violent or to engage in, you know, radical extremism. I think that, you know, there are certain things that happen that might make a veteran more vulnerable uh, but certainly the issue that, you know, I, I know that there's a focus on veterans because many of the people involved in the uh, uh, events on January uh, 6th were veterans. You know, I, it, it's, it's difficult because I think that many people are vulnerable. You know, it's not just the veteran, veteran community. This is something that we see, you know, happening in, in many circles among many groups of people, people who are just feeling, you know, hopeless and helpless. So is this a conversation that the veteran community and people who work and care about vets, are, 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 are people having this conversation now? Have they been having this conversation up until this point? Uh, you know, this is a very new topic. Uh, it's not one that's really being uh, discussed in provider circles at all, you know, uh, in as I was preparing for uh, this evening, I, I talked with lots of folks. I, I even, you know, uh, sought the uh, counsel of our, our, our local VA. And, you know, uh, they confirmed that this is not really a subject that is coming up a lot uh, in, uh, in our circle, you know, veteran service organizations. I know that there has been, you know, some attention uh, with, you know, active duty uh, uh, personnel, military personnel, but in veteran circles, you know, no, I don't know that we've uh, sounded the alarm uh, just yet. Sure. And we're talking about the, uh, the new Secretary of Defense uh, has called for a 60 day stand down to look at extremism within the ranks. Um, mm -hmm. And they, they've already been upfront that they believe they'll probably find more than they already know uh, exists right now. So it, it's not something certainly that could be happening. Uh, just among active duty, but not impacting the veteran community. These are two intertwined communities. So um, is the veteran community kind of behind the curve here now at this point? <laughs> uh, you know, no, I, I don't think so. I think that it's taboo. I, I do also think that, uh, you know, since we tend to focus on, you know, the symptoms, right? Uh, we, we deal with that. And then you think about, you know, mission, the stated mission of the, the VA, which is to care for the veteran. And so we're, we're in the business of providing care. And so I, I don't know that um, we're at a place where we've taken, you know, accepted this as, as one of those areas that we need to tackle. I don't know that, you know, any of us were uh, prepared for this. 
Yeah. And there's we not a lot of we certainly weren't holding groups on these topics <laughs> specifically. Uh, but, you know, I think that now uh, existing interventions uh, to new and, and, and unforeseen problems that are now happening. And that works. would be my, my next question. And <laughs> if you did start tackling this, what would you do? And what would that look like? Um, I, I'm thinking in terms of maybe even the, the buddy system that, that is used for like veteran suicide, where you have somebody who just checks on a friend to, to see if they're okay. Um, could mm -hmm. things like that be adapted to looking at whether or not somebody is gone down a rabbit hole and they're, they're isolating themselves from friends and families and concentrating more on a conspiracy than, than the people around them? Well, you know, I think if you had asked me that a year ago or two years ago, I'd say, you know, yeah, absolutely. We should be, you know, really uh, focusing uh, in on how to solve this problem. But I think that it's difficult to talk about this problem specifically um, in a vacuum. <laughs> you know, uh, there are several crises sort of happening simultaneously. Uh, uh, right now, you know, we have the, the pandemic and then the political turmoil and all of those things. And those things sort of contribute to this problem. And so I don't know that we're tackling that problem specifically. Um, I think that we may be just really in crisis mode. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I add also that uh, what makes this more complicated is the fact that practitioners and, and providers and, and those of us that are, are charged with caring for uh, veterans uh, are experiencing the crisis as well, right? And so uh, we're trying to keep our staff sane <laughs> and keep the yeah. veterans, uh, you know, on the right path at the same time. And so uh, it's a very difficult and uh, a very difficult en endeavor that requires a lot of strategy. Uh, the focus right now uh, probably needs to be more on prevention. I mean, most of the people that come into our pro our programs are, you know, pretty much already in the fight of their, their lives. And so we know that they are more vulnerable. And so maybe, you know, taking more uh, of a, a move towards preventing, you know, uh, the engagement with some of these groups might be the way to go. John Clark, I want to give you a chance to, to chime in here. And, um, you know, take us through some uh, some final thoughts here. I mean, if you were to help solve this situation, what would you do? I, I'd start with the candid conversation, Steve. Uh, mm. You know, uh, I, I read Task Force One, the report that came out, and uh, they've already added the word respect. And, and I think this is the wrong move. We, you know, we, we continue to use these euphemisms. when We really need to have the conversation about racism. We need to have a conversation about race. You know, the word black, white, Mexican, when these words come up, people start to get uncomfortable. We need to have these uncomfortable types of conversations if we're going to move the ball further down the, down the field. John, I'm going to have to, you're, you're getting the last word on this. I'm going to have to thank my guest, Richard Brookshire, with the Black Veterans Project, John Clark III, recently retired Naval Commander, Tony McAleer. He, his book is A Cure for Hate. Pete Simi, professor at sociology at Chapman University and Akilah Templeton, CEO of Veterans Village. I'm Steve Walsh. Thanks for joining us.